want to do both of those things. Uh, the ascension uh, is uh, important. Now, let's do a little, uh, couple introductory questions. Uh, first, uh, why does the ascension of Jesus into heaven seem odd? Like on the surface of it, why is, why is that kind of an odd thing to even uh, contemplate? And there's multiple reasons. So um, what, why, why, why does that seem odd? Or maybe like something we wouldn't necessarily think about in connection with the gospel. Why does it seem odd? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so he, he literally bodily ascended. Uh, and also, um, you know, just connected with that, he still has a body. Right? Like right now. Christ is in heaven and has a body. He didn't give up his humanity in his ascension, right? Um, so he's still human and God at the same time, right? Two natures, one person. Um, so that's odd, right? It's just odd to kind of think, even think about and contemplate or even have our minds wrapped around that. So that's odd. Um, any, any kind of other ways, as we think about, uh, you know, speaking the gospel to ourselves or to others, if we were to talk about someone, let me tell you about the ascension, why might that seem odd to someone we're talking to or even just our own contemplation of it? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so death, burial, and resurrection, we kind of get that. Uh, but why, why the ascension, right? Why um, it doesn't seem, in a sense, it almost doesn't seem to fit, right? Or put it another way, right? If God is the good news, right? He's the good of the good news, right? And Jesus is God, right? And being with him is good. And even in eternity, we know we get to be with Jesus. Why is there an ascension? Like, why did he go away, right? Uh, like, why would he go away? Uh, why and how does that all work, right? So if you think about it, the ascension, we don't talk about it a whole lot. And maybe some of the reason is it seems kind of odd, right? But I want to... Uh, kind of build a case for you this morning that the ascension is crucial to our understanding of the gospel. And even as we, especially as Christians, as we go through our walk, the ascension and uh, really the ongoing state of the ascension is, is essential to our walk. So let's kind of start the way we did last week. Last week we started with the report of the resurrection. Uh, this week let's start with the report of Jesus' ascension. And we're, for that we're going to go to Acts. So someone go ahead and read. Acts 1, 6 through 11, just to get some of the context. So here, we, it's kind of what we've seen in other gospel things. We talk about the event. So we want to talk about the event. The event really happened in history, but then we want to think about, well, what is the significance of that event? So we start in Acts um, 1, 6 through 11. Someone go ahead and read that um, as we start contemplating the ascension. So here's the event.
Okay, so this is the event of the Ascension. Uh, the significance uh, is, I mean, there's a couple things that are, I mean, obviously it's significant, but what's the significance of the Ascension? We'll unpack that, but here it's mainly the event. But what are a couple things you notice about the event? Anything that stick out to you or that um, just um, as we think about Jesus' Ascension? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's this essence in which uh, the disciples, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, guys, you missed it. Uh, I'm not going to, the kingdom is not what you're thinking is. He's already spent 40 days with them explaining the kingdom. So they've got a right conception of the kingdom. They have a wrong conception of the timing. Okay, they have a right conception of the kingdom. It is political, but not just political, right? Um, that's, that's, you know, Israel's conception of, well, yeah, the Messiah is going to come and liberate us from foreign powers. That's true, but it's not the only thing that's true, right? Uh, there's more to it, right? And even the disciples is like, yeah, the kingdom's coming. When are you going to do that, right? And he doesn't rebuke them for their understanding of the kingdom, but he rebukes them for the timing, right? He's like, uh, you, you guys got to wait. It's not for you to know. It's going to come, but uh, you got to wait. Uh, what else in regards to the ascension itself, right? Uh, just anything that sticks out to you. Yeah. Yeah, like... Uh, right. And he gives clues in John, and we'll see a couple of those, that he's going to go away, but like, you know, they're just kind of standing there gaping into heaven, like, and then uh, the angel has to come and say, hey, guys, uh, get to work. Uh, um, he's going to come again, right? So that's the other thing, right? The same way you saw him ascend, right? He's going to descend in the future, right? And that's what we're waiting for. They don't know the timing, uh, but he is going to come and descend and restore that kingdom. Okay, so that's kind of the report of the ascension. Now, even in Acts, we can turn the page basically and start to unpack what is the significance? What is, if that's the event, what's the significance of that event um, biblically? And so let's just go ahead and flip a couple pages over to Acts 2.32. Uh, Acts 2.32, and this is during uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. So the spirits come, he's preaching. Uh, and in the middle of the sermon, we get this. So Acts 2.32 uh, through 36, someone go ahead and read that. Okay, so just from that text, what are some of the key points of, uh, they've seen the ascension, right? Oh, they saw him go up, but what are some extra details and some extra significance we get from Peter's interpretation of that event in, in this passage? Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 
Right. 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 So you see that in the begin. Uh, you see that in the Gospels. You also see that at the beginning of Acts. Um, hey, the Spirit's going to come. That doesn't get to happen uh, until Jesus goes up. Right. So we see part of that. That's part of the ascension, and we're going to focus even more on that here in a second. What else do you see from this uh, piece where Peter's preaching? What What's other significances? What other details does he give us about the ascension? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and they're, he's drawing on their history to show them this is, this is um, you, you've got these great guys in the past that God has used, but now see, here's, here's the, the preeminent one, the exalted one. Uh, Rachel, you were going to say something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, go and Psalm 110, which is what's being quoted here, is the most either quoted or alluded to psalm in the New Testament. Uh, actually, I think it's of the Old Testament scriptures. It's the most quoted or alluded to scripture in the New Testament. It is foundational and significant. So go ahead and turn to Psalm 110 just to get the original context. I'll go ahead and read it. Um, so Psalm 110, a psalm by David, Yahweh, so notice the capital L-O-R-D, so we're talking God's covenant name here, Yahweh says to my Lord, so he's talking, we've got two different people here, we've got Adonai, um, we've got my Lord, uh, and we've got Yahweh, um, sit at my right hand, Till I make your footstool. So the idea in context, David's writing about his Lord, which would be uh, David's given this promise, this messianic promise to the one who's going to sit on the throne. So Peter's alluding to that in, in Acts even. So the my Lord is the ultimate Davidic king, right? Uh, David's superior one. And also uh, what we find out later, this is Jesus. He's the God man, right? So he's also superior um, to Jesus or to, superior to David because he's God. So um, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with Corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the book by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. And you see, really kind of smooshed together two things, right? You see, and this text is used throughout the New Testament again and again and again and again to refer to the ascension. So what it, where did Jesus ascend? He ascended into heavens. He's at the right hand of the Father, a place of prominence, a position, uh, of authority. And he's there until he sub, uh, subdues his enemies. Um, and that will either be through redemptive grace or uh, through judgment, right? And that's what you see at the end of the psalm. You also see the role here of priest, and that's going to be another critical part of the ascension, that Jesus has ascended, he has authority, 
but he also has a, a, a priesthood, an intercession that he is currently um, acting on, right? And so you see that, uh, all those components, right? So you got the Davidic king, you also got him as priest. He's the one who has authority at the right hand of the Father. That's where he is right now as we speak. Sometimes we kind of just, oh yeah, Jesus is gone. But we think, where is he, right? He is at the right hand of the Father. He is in a position of authority over all things. Speaking of authority, let's go ahead and draw on another piece uh, and understanding for how the Old Testament and the New Testament understands the authority that Jesus currently has. Um, And one text I would draw your attention to is Daniel 7. So go ahead and turn over um, to Daniel 7, key text for the Gospels, the New Testament in particular. Um, just to give you a little context, Daniel has this vision. He has this vision of the sea and these beasts coming out of the sea. He sees four beasts, which are representative of uh, the kingdoms of men. Uh, they're representative of kings and kingdoms of men, and they are opposed to God and to his rule, and there's chaos, right? There's really chaos on the earth. And then you get this kind of scene uh, in heaven with the Ancient of Days taking his seat. That's a God the Father taking his seat um, and his throne. Uh, and then in verse 13, you uh, see this, 7, 13 through 14. Someone will go ahead and read that. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. So you get one like a son of man. So like a, and there's all this creation imagery that's embedded in this. So we've got that kind of theme of Adam was supposed to be this original king, then David, and so on and so forth. But here we have the ultimate Davidic king, the son of man, uh, who is presented uh, in the ancient world, only gods get to ride with the clouds of heaven. So he's presented as both God and man coming to the ancient of days, and he's given the authority, the ultimate authority over all kingdoms, over all dominion, right? It's the same things we've been seeing uh, in Matthew. But what's interesting is uh, Jesus, at the end of Matthew, let's say, in Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven on earth has, has been given to me. And what he's thinking about, I think, is he's alluding to this, and when he ascends into heaven at the right hand of the Father, that, that's kind of, this is the heavenly perspective of his vision. So remember, the disciples, they're in Acts, and they're looking up, and he goes up into the clouds, right? But from heaven's perspective, he's coming up, Daniel 7, and he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. So this is the heavenly perspective of his, uh, his authentication, his, uh, he is given the right of all the kingdoms of the earth, which corresponds even to what the disciples were thinking about. They're thinking about this kingdom, right? It's a global kingdom under the Davidic king that's going to come, and Jesus receives that authority. He has that authority. He hasn't claimed it over the whole earth in a visible way yet. Uh, We're waiting for the timing of that, and yet he is that king that rightfully has all that authority at the right hand of the Father. He's sitting there until his enemies shall be made his footstool, Psalm 110. Uh, Turn over to just to show you 
again, what, what we're focusing on this is the ascent in Jesus' authority. So he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Uh, Daniel 7, uh, Matthew 28, we just talked about uh, Ephesians. Go ahead and turn over to Ephesians. And just to fill out this picture of Jesus' authority, Ephesians 1, 19 through 22. Someone go ahead and read that. Ephesians 1, 19 through 22. And Paul's praying that the Ephesian believers would have uh, strength to comprehend all that God has done, and we kind of catch him in the middle in verse 19. 1, 19 through 22. Someone go ahead and read that. Yeah, so you see the same Psalm 110 language, right? He's exalted. He's um, at the right hand of the Father. He has supreme rule and authority over every rule and authority in heaven and on earth, in this age and the one to come when he uh, takes over the Davidic uh, throne on earth. Um, he has all rule, and he is given to the church, right? This one who has all rule, all authority, he's given to the church his, his bride, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, right? So this just gives a picture. He is currently in heaven having rightful authority over all things, okay? Give you another picture of this. Revelation 3, uh, 21, we hear Jesus speaking in heaven after his ascent, uh, and we see what is his uh, perspective on things. So he's speaking to the seven churches. He's try, uh, um, urging them to, to overcome, to endure, to persevere, uh, and we see just at the end of three, uh, chapter 3, three tw Revelation 3, 21 uh, through 22, we get another kind of snapshot of what happened in his ascension and how that corresponds to his authority. So Revelation 3, 21 and 22. So you see two things. You actually see two thrones here. You see the throne of the Father in heaven. That's the one to which um, Christ is at the right hand. And then my throne, I think he's referring to the Davidic throne when he comes back on earth and reigns from a throne in Jerusalem over all, right? And he's promising the disciples, uh, or he's promising his disciples, yes, the church, uh, you get to sit with authority uh, with me. You get to rule with me in the future if you overcome just as I overcame and I'm sitting with my father on his throne. But the idea is that Christ has all authority, right? He's sharing the throne with uh, the Father uh, in overseeing all things. So as we think about the ascent, it's to the right hand of the Father. It's with authority over all things, right? And sometimes we forget that. That's like he's not just gone away somewhere and going to come back someday. He, he is an active role and authority right now as we speak in the, in the heavens at the Father's right hand. Okay? So uh, when you think of the ascension, right— uh, why is that critical? To think of Christ's authority now, uh, both as in, uh, believers as we speak the gospel to ourselves, but also as we speak the gospel to others, 
why is that important to think about Christ's authority in connection with his ascension? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. He gives for those who are aligned with the king, right, who have uh, partaken in his amnesty that he has graciously offered, right, um, that there's an encouragement that things look like they're out of control and that the kings of the earth are in control now, but God has the literally the last laugh um, and how that, that works. Psalm 2, yeah. What else could we say about why would it be important both for our own souls but also for the souls of the people we're speaking to about the gospel that Christ ascended, but he's not just absent, he is active in a rule that has all authority. So this authority aspect. Mike. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Christ did not, uh, he is alive, he is active. Uh, and uh, I think, and we're going to see this as we go, right, we've been saying this all, all, all along, he is the one mediator between God and man. He, he has access, he sits at the right hand, he is alive. So when we're we're speaking the gospel to our own hearts, but also to the hearts of others. We're saying, you're not ultimately dealing with me right here. You're dealing with Christ, the living Christ, the resurrected Christ, who is the only one that with whom you have to do and the only one through whom you can access God, right? Um, and, and that just changes the game, right? It changes the game in our own minds and how we interact with people, right? If we have that right conception of Christ's current authority in heaven, so... Okay, um, let's go ahead and transition and back to something we've already talked about a little bit. Uh, go ahead and turn over to John 16. John 16. Um, and I'll go ahead and read for us John 16, uh, starting in verse 5. And this is where we see he's already telling the disciples he's going to go away. Do they get all of it? No, uh, they get it later. Um, but listen to what Jesus says, John 16, 5. But now I am going to him who sent me. So there's this idea in John. The father sends the son, and then the son has his mission. He fulfills his mission, and he goes back. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. This is interesting, right? We kind of goes back to the beginning. Why the ascension seems odd. Why, if Christ, it's good to be with Christ, why is he gone away, right? Uh, and what does Jesus himself say about him going away? What does he say the advantage is? The Holy Spirit, right? And if we think about all the Old Testament revelation, the, 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 the promise of the new covenant, remember the promise of the new covenant that the Spirit comes and indwells new covenant believers to cause them to obey, right? Um, 
so we kind of see that here, right? Uh, we see that, that helper aspect. We could see that otherwise in John. So that doesn't happen unless Jesus ascends. Jim said it earlier, right? That, that the ascension is necessary to receive the Holy Spirit, um, to, to be able to walk in the ways that God wants. What else, though, does Jesus point to of the coming of the Holy Spirit in this passage that is necessary? What does he say? Yep, so um, Jesus is going to send the Spirit. For what purpose? What's going to happen once the Spirit comes? What does Jesus highlight in this passage? Yeah, conviction. So Ashley said conviction, right? Uh, Conviction of the world. Uh, So the Spirit's going to come. Jesus is absent. What did Jesus do while he was here? He convicted the world. He he loved the world, right? He but he also spoke the truth. He convicted the world. He spoke to them of God's judgment. We've seen that in Matthew. Uh, That's what the Spirit's going to do. The Spirit is the one who convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, corresponding, that, that correlates with and goes along with as his disciples speak the word, right? So it's, it's not uh, separate, it's a both and, right? God uses the means of people speaking the word, and through that, the Spirit convicts uh, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, right? So there's actually advantage, advantage uh, as disciples who have the indwelling Spirit in our our lives, so we can obey by God's grace, but also to the work in the world that the Spirit does, okay? So that is one of the critical components of the ascension. It's not only Jesus' authority, but it's also the sending of the Spirit uh, for us in the church. Any questions or comments on, on that? There's a distinction, and this is critical. So there's Old Testament believers. Old Testament believers are saved by grace through faith in the same sort of way that we are. Okay, so we've got to clear that up. The new birth only happens through the Holy Spirit. We know that. But the distinction is is that, um, and my conviction based on Scripture is, Old Testament believers were not indwelt. So regeneration is different from indwelling, right? Indwelling is empowerment uh, for sanctification to obey God's laws. You can kind of think about it this way. Um, There's a great book I read recently that that was talking about this. The Old Testament, kind of the center of sanctification was the temple. That's where God's presence was. That's where the law went forth from. Um, So it's kind of almost like an exoskeleton versus an an endoskeleton, right? You've You've got the indwelling presence of the Spirit with you. We're individually temples and collectively as the church, temples working together. That's where the Spirit is working for sanctification, right? Uh, Versus in the Old Testament, there's still sanctification that happens. It just happens in a more external sort of a way. Uh, And uh, and so that's that's a key distinction. Yeah, Tony. Melchizedek.
Right, and we're going to see that in Hebrews here in a minute, like, because that's the other key piece to this is Christ's high priestly, current high priestly work, right? And that, that corresponds with the coming of the, uh, of the Spirit. So, uh, one more thing, just in connection with, with this, um, let's, uh, uh, Ephesians 4, uh, 1 through 16, uh, in similar idea, a connected idea, Ephesians 4, 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he, gave, uh, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And then it goes on to explain, he gives the leadership uh, and then the rest of the church working together. We talked about this before of the church working to build itself up uh, and to dis really to display God's presence through the coming of the Spirit in the world. But here what you see, one of the facets of that is the Spirit's gifts, the really Jesus' gifts, to his people, the church, so that they can, in the world, ex expand the display of God's presence, of Christ's presence in the world. So not only is the uh, is Holy Spirit coming to indwell believers, He's also coming through the work of leaders to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Here he's empowering the church and the church and how it works and building itself up to expand his presence in the world, right? Uh, and so that's part of the advantage of Christ's ascension. Uh, when we present the gospel either to our own hearts or to others, right, um, we don't necessarily talk a lot about the Spirit, but that's central to the new covenant reality, right? It comes only through knowing Christ in union with him, but that's central to how, uh, why the, the ascension is so important. Any questions in aspects of the Spirit before we jump and talk about Christ's high priestly intercession? Questions, comments, concerns, conundrums, cries of outrage, screams of panic. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Because of faith. Absolutely. All right. So let's go ahead and jump over to Hebrews. Someone go ahead and read Hebrews 4. So we, we've kind of seen Christ's authority in his ascension. We've seen him giving the Spirit uh, in his ascension. Um, and kind of the, one of the last things we want to talk about is, and probably one of the largest um, that we need to think about is Christ's current active high priestly session. Um, and so someone go ahead and read uh, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16.
through 16. Thanks, Tom. Turn a page over and just to see the same reality, just expressed in different words. Uh, seven, someone read uh, Hebrews 7.23 through chapter 8, verse 2. Hebrews 7.23 through chapter 8, verse 2. You see the Psalm 110 language again, uh, seated at the right hand, that it's just laced through all of the New Testament, right? And you see it again here. But in accordance with what Psalm 110 said, what did it say, right? That not only has he seated at the right hand, and he has an authority as king, uh, and uh, the father and the son will ultimately put um, his enemies under his footstool, you also get the oath that makes Christ a priest after the order of Melchizedek, right? And so kind of uh, what you can think of and what Hebrews operates under, all of the sacrificial system, the temple, the tabernacle, and the Old Testament, it was what we would call a model. What does a model do? It, it, it's real, it's there, but it points you to a reality. What is it pointing Hebrew, and Hebrews operates on this, the, the earthly, the, the, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the temple are pointing to a heavenly reality where Christ went. He entered the heavenly temple. He is in the heavenly temple, the, the real temple, so to speak, that, that, um, that God uh, has constructed without hands, right? And he acts as priest. He presents in an active way his own once-for-all sacrifice uh, for his people uh, and pleads that sacrifice before the throne, right? Uh, and and, and um, he is that priest. And so whether we're talking about um, as believers who have already entrusted themselves to Christ, or whether we're talking about someone who's never entrusted themselves to Christ, they have a priest that they need to deal with. Not me, uh, not uh, really any of us in that sense, right, but with Christ himself, because he's the only one that has this sufficient sacrifice that he can plead in heaven before the Father and know that the Father is going to accept that sacrifice, right? Which is, if we think about that, that just brings everything, we, we tend to think of the, about the cross as past, and it is, Right? But we think about the ongoing sufficiency of that sacrifice for our daily sins and for any who would come 
to, um, to the Father, right? Uh, and, and now we all of a sudden see, wow, that's, that's necessary. We need to talk about that. We need to talk about the ascension and where Jesus is and what he's doing right now as high priest. Uh, thoughts or questions related to that reality? Okay, let me bring you to really in connection with this as Christ's high priesthood, active, current, uh, for believers specifically, go to 1 John. And I'm going to go ahead and start and, um, oh, I'll start in 1.5, but I'm going to focus on 2, 1 through 2. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now catch this, chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Uh, it's the idea of a defense attorney. With the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, the wrath-appeasing sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And really, that's what you see in that high priestly um, role, right? Christ is in heaven. He's before the Father. He's always living, as Hebrews would say, um, to intercede for us. And so when we sin, and we do sin, right? We do sin. What do we come back to? It's what we've been saying all the time through this class. We come back to the gospel, right? We come back to the reality that I am a sinner. I deserve God's wrath justly. My sin is atrocious before a holy God, and yet Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. I entrust myself to him, the one who is the high priest standing in the gap for me in heaven to be able to, uh, to draw near to the Father, which is the good of the good news, right? The, the, best, uh, the best thing of the good news is that Christ draws us to God himself. There is no greater um, gift or no greater reality. And Christ stands as high priest actively, currently, uh, for those who would entrust themselves to him to partake in that. Uh, questions, comments on that as we think about, and, and all this is because of the ascension, right? And that's why we're focusing on it. Any questions, comments on that? Comforting, isn't it? Should be immensely comforting. Uh, and gives us direction when we sin. It's not just, oh, I feel bad, I don't know what to do, I guess when I stop feeling bad, then God and me are okay. No. No, we mourn over our sin, we don't wallow in our sin, but we come back to the gospel and we say, yes, I, I confess, I've done wrong, and I, I'm grieved, um, but I know Christ is my sufficient sacrifice. I know he's in heaven. I know he will represent me to the Father, and I know because his sacrifice is sufficient, not because I feel sorry enough, not because I've done enough good works, not because I've cleaned myself up, 
but I know because of his sacrifice, I am acceptable even into the holy of holies, the place that high priests alone could go because of Christ. And that's a reality we, we present to others when we're sharing the gospel, what we present to our own souls as we preach the gospel to ourselves, and is the significance of the ascension. Um, one last text, um, just in relation to the ascension, Colossians. Um, I've seen this verse, I feel like, a several times in the last couple weeks, just a variety of contexts, but Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Someone go ahead and read that. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. So we see the same language seated at the right hand of God. So there it is again, right? It's the ascension language. Uh, what specifically can we draw from this as the significance of the ascension? It's different than what we've seen so far. What's, what's, what is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a promise that we will be a part of uh, what? Yeah, what, what, what specifically did we get a promise of because of Christ's ascension? Yeah, we'll be raised with him, right? So essentially, remember that idea of union with Christ, that if I am in Christ, uh, we are counted in union together. Uh, and here we see that doctrine kind of played out. I'm in union with Christ. Christ is in heaven. Therefore, my life, if I'm in him, is secure in heaven, right? And so what happened to him, we talked about this last week with the resurrection, will happen to me at his coming, right? Uh, so his ascension guarantees our spiritual life, right? It, uh, it guarantees the future uh, because he has ascended into heaven. Um, any last uh, questions or comments on some of the significances of the ascension? Yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that ongoing, we have, uh, uh, the Father does not look with condemnation if we're in Christ, because we're in Christ. He sees us through the lens of Christ. Our sins dealt with on the cross, Christ's righteousness counted to us, and we can have that active um, relationship with the Father in measure now and in perfect fullness in the future. So, All right, well, uh, let's go ahead. Um, we can keep talking about this. If you have questions, you can always ask me, of course, um, but... Let's go ahead and pray and transition to time of fellowship and then a time in our gathering. Lord Jesus, you right now, as we pray, as I speak, are at the right hand of the Father on high. You are the high priest through whom we cannot otherwise approach the Father. 
but we thank you that we can approach you. We thank you that you have dealt with our sin and that you've accounted to us your righteousness. Um, we thank you that you are your, we are yours, and we look forward to the future. We thank you that you've given us your spirit. Help us to uh, not grieve the spirit, but to live under the power of the spirit in our lives, to walk holy lives, pure lives, lives that are pleasing to you. Help us to wait for the future. Thank you that you've secured our lives for the future because we are in union with you. Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would come quickly, that you would you do that. We pray for those who do not know you. Um, Lord, we pray for those who have not submitted themselves to you. I pray that you would convict Holy Spirit concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and draw them to yourself in mercy. Lord, we pray as we sin during the week that we would confess our sin, that we would mourn over our sin, and that we would come back to you, Jesus, our great high priest, our advocate in heaven. And we thank you that you are ascended there representing us. Uh, be with us as we transition to a time of our morning, morning gathering in the service. Pray that you would be honored and glorified. And thank you for this time in your name. Amen.